Love your Bibles? All right, you ready for the message today? All right, four of you, let's try that again. Come on, you guys all ready for your word today? All right, First Peter chapter three, verses one to two. In the same way, this is actually a really weird statement to read on Mother's Day, just to put it out there. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. Happy Mother's Day. Um, if you, if you missed week one, uh, we talked about how we're gonna build context to this, to this issue and what's going on. Peter is uh, dealing with a very specific issue. And so as we read scripture, we have to realize that at the end of the day, these letters that were written, they weren't written to you and I, they were written to a very specific people. Can we acknowledge that? They were written to a very specific people. So we're kind of now diving into these letters and then getting the, the appropriate realities for us. And so Peter's dealing with a very specific issue right here as he writes these things. But what we do see is that in these 12 verses, uh, Peter is dealing with relationships. So he, he goes on to write, he says, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing golden jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another and be compassionate and humble. How many of you just right out the gate would agree with me? That's hard stuff right there. All right, that's a difficult notion at times, especially in the world that we're living in right now. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Before I give you the title of my message today, I wanna, I wanna create a little bit more context to what it is that we're gonna be talking about today. How many of you would agree with me that relationship consists of multiple people in it. How many of you agree with me? In a marriage, there's a husband and wife and friends, there's friends and right, whether it's a dating relationship or coworkers or whatever the relationship, relationships contain multiple people at times, okay? Now, a fascinating exercise that I've started to realize is I've talked with so many people now pastoring for many, many, many years is that we can get into conversations where we're trying to fix the relationship instead of dealing with the people involved in the relationship. And so what we're gonna be working through today is, is really what I feel is behind or what I believe is behind a lot of the, of the dissonance in our relationships and that is you and me. Because at the end of the day, if the, it's, we often say this to married couples, the marriage isn't broken, the two people in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, friend, the friendship's not, but the, it, the friendship is a product of the people that are involved with it. So I know at the end of the day, if I wanna work on my relationships, I've gotta look at me, right? And so that's what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at ourselves today. We're gonna deal, we're gonna deal with ourselves today because over the next couple weeks, okay, 
I need you to know this. Over the next couple weeks, we're gonna go subtraining with this series. It's gonna get a lot deeper and it's gonna poke on some subject matter that I need to say today. Over the next few weeks, if you've got young kids in here, you need to make sure that you get them into our amazing kids ministry. <laughs> Otherwise, you're probably gonna have some conversations in the car afterwards. And, uh, and so I wanna encourage you with that. But before we get to some of the issues that we're gonna get into relating to our singleness and marriage, very, very topical in nature, dealing with those issues, we've gotta deal with the thing that is in the relationship the common denominator of every single relationship is you. Do y'all agree with me? The common denominator in every single relationship that we have is us, me, you. And so that's what we're gonna be looking at. So here's the title of my, sub, uh, of my message today. If you're writing notes, I want you to write this at the top of your notes. The problem with authentic. The problem with authentic. As we look at our personalities and the implications that they have on our lives, and relationships. So we pray with me just one more time today. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive, it's active, it's powerful, and it has the ability to transform us from the inside out. And so God, right now, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, God, that you would define who we are. And so we honor you, we praise you, we give you this space. Would you, would you move in it? Would your truth be declared in our lives? In Jesus' mighty name, come on and everybody shouted. Amen. So I've heard this statement a couple times uh, now, well, more than a couple times over the past few weeks and months as I've been in conversations with people. And it keeps, it keeps on, because I keep on hearing it, I keep on realizing that I need to kind of now deal with it. And here, here's the statement that's being made. I'm just being authentic. How many of you have heard this statement before in, in a conversation? Or maybe you've said it before. You don't need to raise your hand. It's okay. Um, or maybe you've heard it like this. I'm just being I'm just being real. I'm just being honest with you. I'm just, I'm just being who I am. I'm just being me. Y have you heard these statements before? And so these conversations that have been in, it keeps on being highlighted and, and over and over, I'm just, being, I'm just being authentic. I'm being real. I, wanna, I want us to be authentic. I wanna, I wanna find a place of authenticity. I hear it as a church, like as a pastor, I'll, I'll have people say like, man, I just love this place because it's so authentic. Maybe you're here because of that, which after this message, you'd be like, I don't know if I wanna say that anymore, right? But it's this cultural nomenclature that's happening right now where people are desiring authenticity and, and realness. And I get that at the end of the day because we're all done with fake, right? I, I, like I want real, but what I wanna suggest is that there's a problem with authentic. Here's my problem with the statement. When you live according to yourself, you get selfish outcomes. Let me say that one more time. When you live according to yourself, you get selfish outcomes. And if there was ever a statement that I have found to be chipping away at our relationships, it would be this one. Because the truth is that there is a problem with authenticity. Authenticity is about my original self, not my redeemed and transformed self. And that's the difference. And so many of us, we're trying to live life in such a way where we're operating out of this authentic self, this original self, and we're failing to realize that in Christ, there's a transformed self, there's a redeemed self, there's a sanctified self would be the biblical terms for it. And whichever one I choose to live out of is going to direct the flow and the reality and the health of my relationships. My wife doesn't need Jason being real, she needs me to be transformed. My kids don't need me being authentic, they need me transformed. 
This church doesn't need me being, re they don't need the real Jason, they need the Jason that is being changed daily by the presence of Jesus. Y'all see what I'm talking about? And so if we're just being authentic, if we're just being real, it gets dangerous because here's the thing, our real selves are weird. How many of you agree with me? There's some real stuff in us that is really weird. There's some real stuff that hurts people. There's some real stuff that doesn't make sense. There's some real stuff that hurts us. There's some real stuff that hurts our relationships. I know there's been moments in my marriage, if I, I'm gonna use my marriage as, a, as context for this message a lot today, where uh, maybe you've said this before too, you're just like, I don't know where that came from. You ever said something and went like, where did that come from? Yeah. Well, if you think about it, it came from your, your real self. <laughs> came from the, like, I don't know why I said that. Well, actually, I know why you said that. Y'all see what I'm talking about? The Bible says that over the, out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks the real self. And so at the end of the day, we've got to deal with this issue of authenticity. Now, from a philosophical perspective, we're dealing with it as being, what is being defined as by like sociological circles and philosophical circles as, uh, as this right here, and I quote, the modern authentic self. And what it's producing in our society is what they call a culture of authenticity. And they're actually defining this at a psychological level and at a philosophical level. And it's, and it's this right here, it, it, it's drafting itself into mainstream society. And Jonathan Grant in his book, Divine, uh, Divine Sex states it as this, he defines it for us. Listen to what he says. He says that, that uh, modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality. The only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. Can you see the problem that ensues the minute all of us start living authentically? How many of you agree with me that's a recipe for disaster? If you're being yourself and I'm being my, and we're just all running around being ourself, then all of a sudden, what if yourself doesn't like myself? How many of you realize that ourselves can come up with some crazy things to do? And so as we deal with this issue, we have to understand that there is a, there's a different place that we've gotta live from. So then he goes on to write a very pointed and weighty summation as to where we are at as a culture and society concerning this issue of authenticity. Listen to what he writes. He says, living in the age of authenticity has placed heavy burdens on intimate relationships and has left us striving to build security and meaning on its hopelessly weak foundations. Because of our culture's move away from transcendence or a belief in God as the source of reality, we've come to place the full weight of our personal identity on ordinary life, our material here and now existence. Rather than becoming free and expansive, our relationships have become narrow and constrained, having no purpose beyond themselves. So what's happening is in the name of authenticity, we are chipping away at the beauty of what relationships can be when we are living transformatively. And I would suggest to us today that God's design and desire for our life is to be transformed by his grace and live from that space. See, to be authentic is to actually move, move towards what actually defines who we are, that which brings meaning and substance to ourselves and our relationships, and that is God. Now, the reality is that we all have a personality. Come on, somebody. It's unique, it's interesting, it's, it's purposely designed. 
It's one that God has created within us. So I, so I can go on the record of saying this. This is not a message giving us the woes of personality. What I'm starting to, what I'm trying to build for us is a platform to understand that our personalities influence a lot of what we do. Who we are influences a lot of what we do. And while God has put certain things inside of us when we're just living authentic and being real, we have a tendency to be edging on the side of us that is not redeemed, that is not being worked out in the presence and spirit of God. And therefore it's causing some things and some issues in our life. So our personalities are important for sure. Psalm 139, 14 through to 16 says this, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So if I can just declare this over your life today, if you walked in here and you believe that there is not worth and value and dignity and purpose in your life, can I tell you that because of what the Bible says right there, you need to stop thinking that. You have a purpose, you have a plan, you have a rhyme, you have a reason for your life. This is important. But these personalities are a part of who we are. They're attached to our calling and our purpose. They help us navigate the life that God has designed us to live. However, they are also broken and marred due to sin, abuse, experiences, lack of discipline. Have you ever noticed that we tend to say things like this, I'm just being me, when I'm trying to justify a negative and broken application of myself? You ever notice that? Like, I'm just being me. Like you just offended somebody and you're like, I'm just being me. It's like, do we understand where that, that's coming? It's like the modern day with all due respect. As if you give yourself permission to degrade somebody because you're being authentic. Y'all see what I'm talking about? Here's the truth that we need to hear today. A personality in step with the Holy Spirit is one that brings effectiveness, purpose, and produces fruit. One not in check leads many times to distraction, destruction, misalignment, and hardship, both personally and especially in our relationships. This is the point of Galatians chapter five, verses 20 through 22 to 25. Listen to what it says. Paul the apostle writing, he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the one we all skip over, right? Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. How many of you would recognize, as I recognize, that we're not seeing a lot of those, those fruit items in our world right now? How many of you would agree with me? Let's try this, this section over here. How many of you agree with me that if those pieces of fruit were being exercised and found in our relationships, our relationships would change? And so we've gotta be the type of people that we don't live authentically, we live in step with the Spirit. And when we live in step with the Spirit, this fruit starts to become produced in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the type of marriage I want. That's the type of church that we're trying to build. That's the type of person that I wanna be when I'm in my workplace or in my office, at school, wherever I find myself. I wanna be a fruit person. Author and speaker Tim LaHaye writes this, temperament or personality influences everything you do from sleep habits to study habits, to eating style, to the way that you get along with other people. Humanly speaking, there is no other influence in your life more powerful than your temperament and your personality. There's nothing more powerful than it. I talk with a lot of people 
And they say things like, the devil's up in my marriage. I'm like, no, your personality is. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> we just gotta be real about this stuff. We get, how many of you agree, we give the devil a whole lot more credit than he's due. Like when I read the Bible, the Bible says that the devil's been defeated, but your personality hasn't been. So it, it has a tendency to be involved with a lot of the issues that we face more so than the devil does. I think, I think the devil many times, this is just like I'm pushing myself away from the Bible for just a second when I say it. I think the devil many times is sitting back and going like, no, your personality's got this one, we're good, okay? Like, I don't need to get involved with this. It influences a lot. I remember the earlier years of our marriage, my personality, Erica's personality, influenced a lot of what was happening in our marriage. You go from like living in a space by yourself to all of a sudden being put into a, a home with another personality. It was a recipe for disaster, right? And so we had to work through things. And, and, and man, we had, to, we had to constantly submit ourselves before Jesus. And here we are 17 years later, still submitting ourselves to Jesus. Because it doesn't get older. And then we toss three more into the home. And a German short-haired pointer and things got nuts. So what we, what we have to realize at the end of the day is this is always a, pro we are all in process. Come on, somebody. We are always reassessing. We're always working through these things. And that's the encouragement that I hope to offer to you today. So what I wanna do is I wanna take us, then I wanna introduce us to a character in the Bible who's uh, gonna be our case study for today. We're gonna preach this message a little bit different. Does that work with everybody? It's gonna be our case study. We're gonna look at a, a guy named Philip. And Philip's found in John chapter six, verses one to 15. But before we read, I'm gonna give you the, the backdrop or the context to who Philip was. We know some stuff about him biblically. So I need you to like just lean in, hang on with me, and then we'll get to the practical application. Does that sound good? So Philip, in his, in his name in the Greek means this, lover of horses. It's just fantastic if your parents name you that. And that is the only name that we have for him throughout the entirety of the gospels. And because of this, it's safe to conclude if we do our research about him, more than likely Philip came from a family of Hellenistic Jews. These, this type of Jewish family was a family that had, had assimilated much of the culture, traditions, language, and customs of the prevailing Greeks. So this is important for us to realize, like why are you telling us this right now, Jason? Because how many of you know that all of those things, they play into his personality? His family of origin plays into his personality. What he was raised in, the culture that he was raised in, and we need to understand that about ourselves. Where you were, where you were, where you lived most of your life, whether you were on the coast or middle America or the East Coast, or whether you're from a foreign country, that all has bearing as to who we are becoming and how we are becoming. Our parents and our familial backgrounds and the things that happen, single parent family, multiple parent family, you see what I'm talking about. All of these things play into our personality. Personality isn't just genes running through you. And so we know that Philip had complex, like complexity and nuance attached to his life. According to John chapter one, verses 43 to 51, Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee. He was also, also the home of Andrew and Peter. We all know, uh, we do know as well, is that Philip was one of the first to follow Jesus, as well as introducing Nathaniel to him and being the catalyst for Nathaniel following Jesus. After that, we don't know much more about his background. However, the book of John gives us a ton of information about him and more specifically his personality. Through what John records about him, it seems that Philip was a process person. 
He was a facts and figures type of guy. He played by the book, he was practically minded, he was not, not really forward thinking in nature, but he was methodical, detailed, all right? He was more than likely the one who was appointed by, by the group to work out all the travel, the food and the accommodations for Jesus and the disciples. He would have worked closely with Judas as Judas was appointed to the finances of the group and worked out well for them. Some of you, all, no one's got that joke all afternoon. All right. He was the kind who tends to be a corporate killjoy, pessimistic, narrowly focused is the negative side of his personality, sometimes missing the big picture, often obsessed with identifying reasons that something couldn't be done rather than finding the ways to do them. Anybody know what I'm talking about? He was predisposed as a pragmatist and a cynic and sometimes a defeatist rather than a visionary. This was his personality. It was his natural disposition, if you will. There were great strengths to his personality, but great weaknesses. We know that Philip had great knowledge of the Old Testament and with that knowledge, it was more than likely he would have immediately embraced Jesus after he put the pieces together and realized this makes logical sense. Do I have any logical sense people in here? It's like a, like one, two, three, A, B, C. Okay, cool, this makes sense. So he was more of that personality. That's the way he saw it. So there's this, there's this part of Philip that engages with Jesus on a relational level out of a pragmatic point of view, which adds nuance and complexity to his relationship with Jesus. And this is important because as we get ready to read John chapter six, verses one to 15, we're gonna see Jesus engage with Philip to press on him, to push on him, to correct some things and ultimately bring him into a new place. How many of you love it when Jesus presses into us and he's like, it's time to work on some stuff, right? This is what happened in Philip's life. John chapter six, verses one to 15. It says this, after Jesus went away to the other side of the sea of Galilee, which is the sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. He was healing people. Jesus went up onto the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said this to Philip. Watch what he says to Philip. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now that may be a statement that you're like, who cares? Why are we paying attention to this? It's because of the statement after. Listen to what he said. He said this to test him. Every shout test. Here's my personal persuasion, is that whenever we see Jesus testing somebody, we need to pay attention to that test. So we should cue in right now. For he himself knew what he would do. So Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Jesus said, have the people sit down, now there was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to all who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So he gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There is so much in this story. Many of you have heard this portion of scripture. It's the feeding of the 5,000. We've looked at the miracle about it. We've, we've looked at the criminality of them stealing the little boy's fishes and loaves, <laughs> right? There's so, there's so much reality to this, but what I wanna focus on is, is what took place between Jesus and Philip. Because I think it's significant for us to understand. 
I think it's important for us to understand. And there's some observations that I wanna, I wanna take a look at and I wanna make concerning what happens when Jesus collides with our story. What happens when Jesus gets involved with our stuff? Because at the end of the day, this is what we have to understand and know, is that there is a certain point when we come to Jesus, he is gonna get involved with meddling with who you are and what you are and what's going on in here and what's going on here because he has a, day, a design, he has a plan and he has a purpose for your life. And so he's gonna get involved with it. This isn't just a relationship where we keep him at arm's length, he wants to get involved with your life. So it's with that idea that I wanna offer us a few observations today, but I need your help. Come on, every shot number one. There's the first observation. I think it's important for us to note because of this interaction of, of, with Philip and Jesus, and it's this, our natural disposition is not always in alignment with God's design. So it, like when we're running around saying, I'm just trying to be authentic, I'm just trying to be real, I'm just trying to be me, I wanna suggest to us that at the end of the day, we are not always in line with God's design. Our authentic self is not always in alignment with what God is trying to do in our lives. You see, there are many reasons that we tend to default to a natural disposition, contrary to the heavenly design of our lives. Our default, default mode is one of skepticism, it's doubt, it's unbelief, it's jadedness, it's cynicism, it's insecurity, it's fear, it's misunderstanding. And we do this because of brokenness and sin. We do this because of lack of understanding. We do this because of lack of knowledge. We do this because of apathy. We do this because of the things that have been perpetrated against us. We do it for a bunch of different reasons. And I wanna acknowledge that today. Because what we do many times is we don't acknowledge why we do some of the things that we do. We just kind of open-handedly say, this is what we do. And we all feel bad about it and shamed by it. I don't want us to feel bad about it or shamed by it. I just want us to acknowledge that we do this. Y'all with me today? And there's reasons that we do it. I still default to certain things. I still default, like my natural, I'm, an, I'm, I'm more of an aggressive person. I've got a ton of energy. I just wanna go. And so my, my natural default position, as you can see even right now, is intense. That's my natural default position. And so I've gotta constantly make sure that my intensity is curbed by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, I can just steamroll. And so our natural disposition is not always in alignment with God's design. Philip saw the situation one way, Jesus saw it another. Jesus knew how Philip was going to respond because like us, Philip was going to respond with a natural answer and thought process. And this is what we have a tendency to do. I like how one author put it when he spoke of Philip, he said this, Philip was so obsessed with the temporal predicament that he was oblivious to the transcendent possibilities that lay in the power of Jesus. You ever been there before? You ever been so close to the situation that you haven't backed up enough to see what God can do in it? You ever been so close, like you're, you, like you're in, in, for those of us who are married, I've been so close to the issue that I feel like I've gotta try to work and fix it, work and fix it, work and fix it, instead of stepping back and going, wait a second, what does it look like to find alignment with God on this? to see the transcendent possibility instead of the Jason-cendent possibility. This is reframing the way that we, we look at things. How many of you agree with me? We get so fixated on the things in front of us that we, pull, that we fail to pull back and realize who is for us. We get so locked into the problem that we fail to remember what Jesus is, is capable of. And that's the thing, that's the issue, is that our natural disposition is not always in alignment with God's 
design. Heavenly design is built on faith. It's built on kingdom mindedness. It's built on the power of Jesus. See, on paper, the situation looked impossible, improbable. How many of you would agree with me that looking at that story, that's like, if you're staring at it, you're going, man, this is impossible. Do you really think that we can feed all of these people with loaves and fish? I mean, could you imagine being in that moment? Like, I would like to say that I'm a faith person, but even like, I'd be sitting there going like, what? You're gonna jack that kid's lunch so that you can feed like, no one. You're gonna feed no one, right? Like, I get the pessimism that's in that. But here's the reality that we're looking at is that so many of us engage every situation like that instead of stepping back for a moment and going, what does it look like to align with God on this? Are y'all with me this afternoon? And so heavenly designs built on faith and kingdom mindedness. And that was the atmosphere conducive for a miracle. Here's another way to look at it. We have to be careful not to let the policies of paper limit the person and power of Christ. Someone told you you weren't smart enough. Somebody told you your personality is this. Somebody told you you're introverted or extroverted. You're this, you're, you see what I'm talking about? How many of us have lived and have been living our lives according to the things that have been said about us that are not aligned with God's design for us? That's the greatest, that, like as a pastor, that's my greatest frustration. Can I just be like real with you for just a second? There's the, there's the, can I just be me for just a second? <laughs> if there was one thing that I could change, like as a pastor, I wish I could just like annihilate this thing. It's the things that have been spoken over your lives that stop you from stepping into what God has for you. That if, I could, if I could just like rob one thing. If I could rob one thing, and, and I know that if I could just get rid of one thing in me, it would be those things that were spoken over me that caused me to hesitate, that caused me to stop and be like, ah, I don't know about this. Can I just declare over your life that God's word over you is so much greater than the world's word over you? At the end of the day, come on, students, come on, teenagers, God's word over your life is so much better than the world's word over your life. And it's amazing how we will let four people at school define who we are rather than the author of our life, the God of the universe. So we gotta pay attention to this because why? At the end of the day, we have to understand our natural disposition is not always in alignment with God's design. Can I just read this over you today? Jeremiah chapter one, verses four to 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Let, let's stop for just a second, let's look at this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before any physical substance, before you were even thought about as a conception of your parents, before any of that, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. And then he said, not only did I set you apart, not only did I know you, there's intimacy, not only were you consecrated and set apart, but then I appointed you. I gave you purpose. I gave you desire, I appointed you to the nation. Now God's talking to Jeremiah right now when he says this, but then Jeremiah, like the great human being that we all are, has a rebuttal. And he says, ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak for I am only a youth. 
God, don't, don't, you, don't you know, like, I don't think very well, or I've got this issue going on, or I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Can we just stop with the I'm nots for a second and realize who God has made us to be at the end of the day? This is, I'm only, a, but the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth, knucklehead. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Can I just tell you, there's business in this room, there's books in this room, there, there's amazing inventions in this room, there's artists and musicians and, come on, lawyers and doctors and influence. Come on, it's all in this room. But it would be really easy to say, but God, remember when Miss Smith told me? You remember when my dad walked away from me? Remember what that foster parent did to me? Do you remember what my boss said? Can we talk about the broken things? Can we talk about the moments that defined us? And God says, I knew all that, I see all that, but I've still called you above all that. Where I go or where I send you, you shall go. I love how he encourages Jeremiah that he put his hand and he touched his mouth so he, he engages in intimacy with him and then says to him, behold, I've put my words in your mouth. I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overflow, to build and to plant. And what a beautiful piece of scripture. Let me say this to some of us in here today. God desires to do the impossible with the unlikely. Oh, come on somebody. God desires to do the impossible with the unlikely. I love how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Number two, come on, everybody, shout number two. There's a second observation I wanna make is that if we're not careful, we can use who we are as a crutch for inactivity. John chapter six, verse seven, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So now all of a sudden you have this inactivity starting, this lack of engagement because of who Philip was. He solicited a response from Philip full knowing that he would respond in the way that he did. He was trying to get Philip to assess it. And that's what was going there. Was he did it to test him for something to come out of him. That's why I love moments like this. That's why we work hard to challenge us with critical thinking and hard scripture in services like this. Why? Because we need to say the things out loud so that we can assess where we're at. Here's the better way to say it. God will offend our heads to expose our hearts. God will offend our heads in order to expose our hearts, to deal with the stuff that's in there. Come on, anybody with me today? These are, these are important things. And so what happens is if we're not careful, we can use who we are as a crutch for inactivity. I remember when we first had justice, I've told this story before, but if I can just be open and, and kind of vulnerable and transparent with you. When, when we had justice, my oldest, I remember having a conversation with Erica on the backside of his birth that went along the lines of like my freak out session as to being a father. Why? Because I didn't, I didn't come from like a stellar fatherly background. It's, I didn't have this, this giant behind me cheering me on. I had some rather dysfunctional realities that I was pervy to. So I didn't have anybody model things for me. Come on. And so there was this fear. And now, and now I had a choice. And I remember Erica sitting there 
challenging me and encouraging me at the same time, saying this, you don't need a perfect background in order to engage what God has for you. You just need God to define you as a father. And so I'm going on the journey and I'm doing the hard work of becoming the man that I wanna be for my son rather than having to look back because I don't have anything to look back for. Now, some of you sitting in this room, you have great history behind you. And that's awesome, I love that. But maybe it's something else that causes fear. Maybe it's something else that causes trepidation. But if we are not careful, we can use who we are as a crutch for inactivity. And we say things like this, that's just not who I am. I'm just a... Come on, can I talk to the guys in the room? The guys in the room, everybody got really quiet. All the, guy, all the guys in the house. Can I just say, I've heard this from so many guys when it comes to worship. Yeah, that's, not just my, that's just not my thing. That's just not my thing. I don't lift my hands. I don't do that. Can I just tell you, it doesn't matter whether it's your thing or not. God has called, that, that's part of our design. And so I watch a lot of guys that just like this, we're getting ready to hold a men's conference, our first men's conference at the end of this year, like towards fall. We're not trying to create a room with a bunch of guys standing like this. We need a room with a bunch of guys like this, okay? But so many times, and can I tell you, like I'm, I don't worship, like it's not my natural disposition. It's not, it's not my natural disposition, believe it or not. As the pastor, it's not my natural disposition. I've gotta at times go like this, okay, Jason. Lift your hands. <laughs> Keep them up. Keep them up. Keep them up. And here's why I'm saying that to myself, because I don't want them up. I'm frustrated. And then you could say, hold on, then you could say, oh, that's not living authentically. He didn't ask for my authenticity. He asked for my praise. Simple as that. So David, read the Psalms. David would be like, I want to, I, I'm, life is horrible. I wanna hurt these people. I wanna give up on you, God. I wanna burn those people down. And then I wanna all that over there. And I hate this and I'm frustrated with this. And then he turns around, he pivots in a moment and he says, but I will praise you. But I will lift my hand, awaken my soul. So what is he doing? He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter what my natural disposition is, I need a spiritual disposition. Everything we do is for him and about him. So Psalm 51 verse 10 is the antidote. This is what he says. This is our prayer, should be our prayer. And then I'm gonna invite the team up. Psalm 51 10 says this, created me a clean heart, O God. Created me a, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit, within me. That's my prayer every single day, is to renew, God, renew a right spirit in me. Where I've leaned on my natural disposition, God, I wanna lean into your spiritual grace. Where I've leaned into me, I wanna lean into your, I wanna keep in step with the spirit. Can we just acknowledge this is really hard? It's hard. It's difficult at times. We can find a million and one reasons why we don't do it or shouldn't do it. And let me say this, before I give you the last observation, some of you are like, Jason, you're being really strong right now. Like you're saying very like kind of black and white statements. Yes. Here's why. My job as the pastor of this church 
is to work as hard as I possibly can at helping us develop a, a biblical worldview. So I'm saying what the Bible says. Oh, listen, there's a world worldview. And my job is to equip you with a biblical worldview so that you can walk out of here and then you can do the compare and contrast. Any of these things that I'm saying today, I would, I would encourage you, go back and look at scripture. Open this thing up and see what it is that God has designed our lives for. Trying to equip us to be the type of people that God needs us to be in the world that we're living around and in. And I'm telling you right now, if we can deal with us, it's gonna help our relationships. Number three, every shot, number three. Here's the last truth, there's the last observation. Our personality provides us with both power and poison. Our personality provides us with both power and poison. I'm gonna close with a story. When I was in Bible college, some of you have been around for a, a little while, maybe have heard this story before, but when I was in Bible college, I had a buddy and him and I used to sneak into the church. Technically it was breaking into during, but we called it sneaking. So um, we used to sneak into the church on Saturday nights and we would sneak into the youth room. The youth room was roughly about this size, honestly. And they had a stage in there and the pulpit was there. And me and my friend, we would take the entire week, we would develop a message and then we'd sneak into the church on Saturday night and we would preach the message to each other. We used to call it extreme Saturday night preaching. That was, our, that was our thing. I look back on it now and I'm like, what a bunch of knuckleheads. But this is what we do. We'd, we'd sit and like one person would preach and the other one would sit and we'd like act all serious. So like we're critiquing them, we're like writing notes and be like your doctrine's off and your theology's off. And we grade them on creativity and all these other things. So like it was this whole thing on a, on a Saturday night. And so we did this probably for a couple months. A couple months we would do the sneak in, do our messages, sneak out, grade each other. I've still got, I've still got my, my folder with all the messages that I preached for extreme Saturday night preaching. I actually cherish that folder. Here's why. One of my professors who does our preaching and teaching, who did our preaching and teaching class, got wind of what was happening. Called us into his office. And he said, I heard you guys have been sneaking into the church and preaching to each other on Saturday nights. And so we sheepishly were like, yeah, that's guilty as charged. We thought we were in trouble, thought someone was gonna come out of it. He goes, hey, I wanna invite you over to my house. And this is what he said. He goes, I've got a pulpit in one of my upstairs rooms that I go to, it's from England from the 1800s. I preach and practice all my messages at this pulpit. I wanna invite you guys over to develop a message and preach it to me and I'm gonna critique it for you. And we lit up. This was a guy I admired. Every time he spoke on the weekend, I was blown away by it. It was absolutely insane. And so here we are, we're putting our messages together and we're just like, and we're going back and forth on it. Showed up at his house, had dinner, had tea. And then we went up into this room and there was a chair, old wooden pulpit. It's old wooden pulpit. And we gave a message. Preached. And I could tell, I preached the paint off those walls. I went for it. I went deep. I was like, this, I got one chance and I'm gonna go for it, right? And so have you ever done something where like after you get done, you're like, man, that was so good. You ever been there before? Come, I'm not the only one. You guys knock it off. Knock it off. Like, come on, show of hands. How many of you have been there? Come on, you thought highly of yourself. You're like, man, that was so awesome. And so he goes, right after I got done preaching, he goes, hey, so, um, so what do you think? How do you think you did? And I was like, well, humbly, 
I did awesome. And he goes, yeah, not so much. Now I will let you know why I preach the way I preach every single week. And I, I, don't, I don't use this story to highlight myself as much as I'm using it as an axiom to help to illustrate this reality. So people ask me, why do you preach the way that you do every single week with so much fire, so much like, I work so hard with so much scripture and so much this and so much that. It's because of what this professor said to me. He goes, you could give four of those messages and then people would no longer care. And I said, I mean, that was coming out the gate hot. I was like, really? He goes, yeah, that message was all you. That was a half an inch deep and a mile wide. And he goes, if you're gonna pastor people, you can't give them that. They don't need you. They need his living word. And so then he said to me in that moment, he said, you gave me all charisma, no character. You gave me all you. He said, yeah, you can joke around and you can laugh and you can do all these different things and you're so good at like doing this whole thing. He says, you'll do that four times and then you have nothing. And it was in that moment that I realized that our personality provides us with both power and poison. I realized in that moment that I had to do the deep work. You wonder why I preach a little bit longer and make sure there's a truckload of scripture in it and all my backup is because his voice is in my head every single weekend. They don't need you, they need his word. They don't need you, they need his word. They don't need, why? Because that's the poison of me. Can I be like, that's my poison. I can lean on myself. You pick your poison. What's your poison? What's the thing in you that causes you to be more self-reliant than God-reliant? What's the thing inside of you that causes you to assess how you're gonna take care of a situation versus how he could take care of a situation? What is it in you that's bringing heat to that relationship that if you would just drop you and get more of him, it would all of a sudden bring some clarity to the relationship? What is it about you that's bringing dissonance to the marriage? What is it about you that's frustrating your singleness? What is it about you that's causing relationships to never work? What is it in you that's causing things to feel awkward? What is it in you, what's the poison? And then how do you drop the poison and get his power? And that's the place we gotta live from, why? Because at the end of the day, our personalities, they provide us with both power and poison. So my prayer for you today, as we close, is to acknowledge this space in our lives. Because as we dig into the content that's coming, so much of it's gonna be dependent upon this issue. Eric and I are gonna do a message together on marriage for these moments. We're gonna be talking about singleness. We're gonna be talking about friendships. We're gonna be talking about parenting. All of these different things that are gonna come up at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we say about them if we don't deal with me. I wanna invite you to stand to your feet right now as we get ready to dismiss Jesus. I ask you to just bow your head and close your eyes in this moment. Father, I thank you for what it is that you're doing in this place right now. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, I wanna introduce you, I wanna give you the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you've never done it before, maybe you've never said yes to him before, but I wanna give you the opportunity to, in this moment with clarity and discernment, say, man, God, 
I need to say yes to you. So with every head bowed and every head closed, we're gonna pray a prayer all together. And uh, if you would say today, man, Jason, I wanna say yes to Jesus. I wanna be in relationship with him. I wanna just encourage you to say this prayer with us. We're gonna pray together so we don't leave anybody out. Come on, with faith and expectancy today, would everybody just repeat these words after me? Everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Today, I am deciding to become a Christ follower. In Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today and you're saying yes to Jesus, come on, would you put your hand up just right now? I just wanna know that you're here with us right over here. Come on, anybody else right there, bud, I see you. Come on, anybody else today that would say, this is me right over here in the corner. Thanks, dude, I can see you over there. Somebody right over here, fantastic. Come on, anybody else today that would say, this is me, this is my moment, I'm saying yes to Jesus. So beautiful, absolutely amazing. Come on, can we lift our head? Can we open our eyes? Can we celebrate all those who are saying yes to him today? Come on.